You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, We're going to do the Bible reading now. So the Bible reading today is John chapter 11, verses 45 to 57. Uh, The Bible reading will appear behind my head. It's also on the welcome card on the website. And there are some Bibles at the ends of the aisles if you'd like to have a physical one. So John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people then that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, He withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Uh, Hello, good afternoon. Um, I'm Stuart and I've been a member here for a number of years. Uh, There's an outline for my talk on the uh, website, darabinpc.com.au, under Sundays. The sermon outline can be found there following that somewhat today. Um, But right now I'm going to pray for us before we look at the passage again. Father, thank you for this passage about the effects Jesus had on the Sanhedrin and the many Jews of his day. I pray that you'd help me to speak clearly and that we'd be challenged by the power that only Jesus has. Amen. Great events can cause different reactions. We see that at federal elections. One party gets to form government and one party does not. On election night, we see the winners having a great time at their respective gatherings, celebrating their victories. And in contrast, we see the very sombre gatherings of the losers. One room of laughter and joy, another room of sad people commiserating their loss. Same thing with sport. One team wins the cup and the other team doesn't. One team is seen drinking champagne from the trophy. 
the other team is in tears. Take what happened in New York almost 21 years ago on September 11, 2001, when terrorists flew planes into buildings. The images of those planes have been replayed countless times on TV and we saw people in one city go into shock and grief mode. But in another part of the world, people reacted by dancing in the streets at the same news. YouTube has that vision still. Even with serious events, different people can react differently depending on their attitude. Now, John 11 is not the same as September 11, but it does involve plotting to take someone's life. And the passage carries weight in a different way. Last week we saw Peter um, preach about the miracle of raising Lazarus and the one who claimed to have power to give eternal life. But the second half of chapter 11 shows that people had different reactions to this event. And so today, my big idea is that people will gather against Jesus, but people will also gather under Jesus. People who gather against Jesus is about their willful rebellion against God. But people who gather under Jesus is about God's desire to save a people. Today, I'm going to draw out three main points of application, and I'll contrast these two gatherings and encourage us to gather under Jesus who forgives and protects where real lasting power is found. So in verse 45 and 46, we read, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now what they'd seen, of course, was the raising of Lazarus. And Peter showed us last week that Lazarus had not been dead for five minutes. This wasn't Bondi Rescue where they drag up an unconscious swimmer from the beach and give mouth to mouth and they're revived. Lazarus was fully dead. I mean, he'd been in the tomb for four days and his body was smelling and decomposing. In fact, the King James Version of the Bible says that he stinketh. So, (laughs) but I mean, in in being deeply moved by uh, Mary's grief and convinced that Mary knew who he was, Jesus simply said, come out, and he came out. And we read that seeing this and the other miracles or signs was enough for many of the Jews to believe in Jesus. This year in our series on John, we know the reason these signs were included was that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And that's the purpose statement of John written in chapter 20. So for many of them, seeing Jesus raise Lazarus was the clincher, and many believed. But also we see that some of them went and told the Pharisees, who arranged a meeting of the Jewish leaders. Now at a time of heightened tension between Jesus and the Pharisees, raising Lazarus was the event that polarised people. So much so that a special meeting was called. Raising Lazarus really raised the stakes for the Jewish leadership. In verses 47 and 48, we read, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and nation. Now, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish high court, made up of Jewish nobility, lay leaders and priests. They exercised a wide-ranging Um, decision-making powers in judicial and religious matters 
from their point of view, raising Lazarus was really threatening. In earlier chapters, we have seen the Jewish leaders interact with Jesus and the people healed by him. They ask questions about several of his miracles, but at no point do they deny they happened. But not even what they had seen was enough to convince them. Even raising someone from the dead after four days was not enough to convince those determined not to believe. When they say, what are we accomplishing? They are admitting that they are powerless and at the end of their tether. The miracles show that Jesus has the spiritual authority which unmasked their own illegitimacy as spiritual leaders. But the signs were not their chief concern. They were mostly concerned about how many others would believe in Jesus and the future of their temple and nation. But why was this the case? To answer this, we must remember the Sanhedrin were a group of highly educated men who were aware of their history. They were entrusted as guardians of the Jewish faith. Imagine for a moment that you were on a committee in charge of a whole denomination and you could trace its history and origins that included heroes of the faith that you respected. Would you be concerned about maintaining the doctrines and standards of that denomination? I'm guessing that, yes, you would be concerned about those things. The Sanhedrin knew their history and they knew their temple and nation had been taken away before. This year we've been looking at Daniel and we see there that the Babylonians did indeed destroy the temple and take the nation off to Babylon for a period of exile. After the Babylonian period empire ended, many came back to Jerusalem and were, but were ruled by a Persian empire. We read about Darius the Persian in Nehemiah 12. After the Persian Empire ended, Israel was ruled by a series of Greek empires before Rome came to rule over them. But Rome was not what they'd hoped for. For the Jews, it was just one empire after another. So why this history is important is because within Jewish culture, there was a very strong dislike towards non-Jewish religion that lasted right up until Jesus' time. Under all these foreign rulers, worshipping at the temple and living according to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, was central to their religion and their identity as a nation. Jesus saw, sorry, they saw Jesus as a threat to their religion and identity, which was wedded to the temple. We then read in verses 49 and 50 about Caiaphas, who said in verse 50, do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas's statement connects the balance of power with the death of one person. He is saying that it is better to sacrifice one person than risk the destruction of the whole nation. Christians will see, of course, the irony in this statement because Jesus does die for the people, the people who are faithful to God, that is. And indeed, about 40 years later, the nation of Israel does indeed perish when Jerusalem and their temple is destroyed by Rome. It's ironic because the Jewish high priest helped bring this into effect. But his words also show malicious intent and the depth of their sin in their heart. The Sanhedrin were not ready to give up power and would rather sacrifice an innocent life to ensure their temple and nation were not destroyed. Caiaphas was a Sadducee, and Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, but he knew that Lazarus was alive. 
He was highly educated, intelligent, but also cynical and ruthless. Their fear was that if more and more people believed in Jesus, then the Roman Empire, which ruled over them, may come and destroy the temple and the nation, as had happened before. But in looking at Caiaphas' statement, we also need to consider that John says that he prophesied. In verse 51 and 53, we read, He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, not only for that nation but for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. And so from that day on they plotted to take his life. In this section there are three main points that I want to take out. Firstly, point number one. We need to see the huge risk of preserving power and where this can lead. The Sanhedrin were plotting evil just to maintain power. Their plotting breached the sixth commandment, which says that you shall not murder. The Sanhedrin were meant to uphold the law, that is all the Ten Commandments, and the books of Moses. They were supposed to be exemplars of holiness. Instead, they were plotting murder so they could hold power over the people. But sin is not merely breaking God's law, but making good things into ultimate things that have replaced God. The books of Moses are good. The Ten Commandments are good. They are for our benefit. But they had turned those good things into ultimate things and lost sight of how their own scriptures were to be fulfilled. They had missed the point about Jesus and were clinging to earthly power. But before we rush in to condemn the Sanhedrin, we, must, we ought to be mindful that the church has indeed been responsible for similar sorts of evils over time. Unfortunately, the urge to preserve power has been part of the history of the church. At one stage, the church in England had an absurd fear about what Bible translation was approved for use. In the 1500s, which goes back a bit, but in the 1500s, they had an enormous concern that the Latin translation, which only the clergy could understand, would dare be translated into English. Translating the Bible into any other language was considered heresy at the time. They thought that if the everyday person had access to the Bible in a language they understood, the church would lose power and control. Perhaps some of you will know that it took the efforts of William Tyndale, an Oxford scholar, who had to leave England for Europe to translate the Bible into English. But Tyndale was eventually killed by the church for that crime. So the leaders of the church could protect their power. But the church in England at the time also thought they were doing a good thing. They were concerned about discipline in the church. And they thought that if an ordinary people had knew the language of the Bible, it may start a rebellion against their control. But their fears obscured the truth that God desires all people, no matter um, what language they understand, to come to salvation in Christ. And having a Bible in their own language might, in fact, help that. Just before Tyndale was killed, his last prayer was, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Two years later, an English Bible was placed in every parish church in England. Much of the Bible we have today is due to his work of translation. The leaders then could not stop the sovereign power of God. 
So leaders need to be aware of the risks in preserving power for them and their people. But this can be said of leaders at all levels in the church. Perhaps you're a leader of a, of a home group or a ministry um, where someone comes along who's better at communicating or attracting others to that group. How do you react to that? Is it with great anticipation and eagerness that perhaps more might come to, to know God? Or do you try to control what that person does to protect your position so that your power is not affected? We all need to see that we all can slip into this mode of preserving our own power. Point number two. We see here that just because people saw Jesus performing miracles, it does not mean they also believed. Jews here are standing proof that people did see signs and wonders and yet remained as hard as stone. So it should not surprise us that when we see unbelief today, even amongst us in the church, it may seem extraordinary how people cannot see the truth which seems so clear and might be struck by the signs and wonders that Jesus performed and believe in them. But there's often something deeper going on as to one's belief or unbelief. Unbelief can be very deep-seated. And if we're honest as Christians, that at all times you know, we have different levels of unbelief, no matter how long we've been in the church. So we need to stop and consider the magnitude of these miracles for ourselves and just check how we are responding to them. Do we see the power Jesus has? Are we amazed and in awe of his miracles and healings? Sometimes we need to be humble enough to ask God to help us believe. Point number three. We need to stand back and see how God is working here. Because in verse 51, John says that Caiaphas prophesied. That is, he spoke God's words. And God said, it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should perish. At one level, these are Caiaphas's words. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead and out of the way. But at another level, they are also God's words. So we need to stand back and consider the sovereignty of God and realise that God wanted Jesus dead. And John records these words that God spoke through Caiaphas. Jesus' ultimate death, though it came at the hands of evil men, was brought by God for our gain. The plot to kill Jesus was a set of events that God planned for our good. God is sovereign over these events and uses the designs and enemies to uses the designs of his enemies to work for the good of his people. He oversees not only the good things in life, but also the bad things that will bring ultimate good. Now we move to verse 52. Here we read that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. Now here we see hope opening up for us because John shows us that another gathering will occur under Jesus. John knows that by his death and resurrection, Jesus will gather the dispersed children of God. John is saying that Jesus' death is the fulfilment of Old Testament scripture. In Isaiah, God says he will assemble the scattered people of Judah from four quarters of the earth. In Jeremiah, God says that all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honour the name of the Lord. In Matthew, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and says, I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Jesus himself mentions the Gentiles in chapter 10, 
when Jesus says, I have other sheep not of this pen and must bring them in also. Jesus was expecting non-Jews to be in the church. So in summary, John is contrasting two gatherings. One gathering made up of the Sanhedrin plotting evil and death, wanting to maintain their rule. But another gathering in the future brought together under Jesus where he has gathered in his children and made them a unified community. But who are the children of God? Paraphrasing John chapter 1, it says that he came that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Not not born of natural descent, but born of God. You can be a child of God if you believe. So the obvious question is, which of these two gatherings do you identify with? Do you identify with a gathering of people who, at the end of the day, push Jesus away and are mostly concerned with maintaining power and control? Or the gathering of the forgiven and protected under Jesus? Perhaps you can say to yourself that, yes, I used to push Jesus away and did stuff that I now see as being evil. But praise God that he has worked in my heart to change me. Praise God that I now live to identify with Jesus. I think those of us who are Christians really need to realise that what we used to think and do was evil in the sight of God. The only way that we are protected is by our faith in Jesus. But perhaps you're not sure. Perhaps you're not sure about Jesus and wondering how to be part of the gathering of the forgiven and protected under him. Perhaps you're wondering how to move from one gathering to the other and how to accept Jesus. The way to move to the gathering under Jesus is to really admit that you have not taken Jesus seriously. Maybe you need to see that you have in some way committed different sorts of evil. Whilst you may not have plotted someone's death, you you, you need to see that evil is behind all sin and we all need the forgiveness that only faith in Jesus provides. Perhaps right now Jesus is calling you to move into his gathering where forgiveness and protection are guaranteed. If so, you can accept his calling right here, right now. In dying for the scattered children of God and being risen on the third day, Jesus' claims of who he is are verified. Unlike the Sanhedrin who wanted their needs served first, Jesus came to put your needs first. In his life, death and resurrection, he satisfied God's requirements for you and he knows that you can't satisfy them yourself. He saved you by serving and making himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And that's best seen at the cross. His resurrection shows that he has the power to save you from your sins. Jesus achieves power through weakness and service, not through exerting power over others. When we understand that we are saved by faith in the work of Christ alone, we come to rely on his power and stop seeking it elsewhere. Now, finally, in the last section from verse 54 to 57, we see Jesus withdraw from the public to a place near the wilderness with his disciples. We read that it was almost time for the Jewish Passover when he went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing. And they kept looking for Jesus, asking questions. And they knew that if they found out where Jesus was, it should be reported that he can be arrested. In this final section, we see a group of Jews who are also focused on the outward ceremonial. But they were looking and waiting for Jesus, 
perhaps whilst avoiding taking a position on it. They asked themselves questions about even whether Jesus was even coming to the festival. The Jews here have received orders that if they know where Jesus was, they should report it so that he might be arrested. But we are faced with the same question time and time again. What will we do with Jesus? Will we give up on him or will we stand with him? When things get hard, do we at times give up and allow a culture that violently opposes Jesus to trash his name? They were preparing to be ceremonially clean, yet being asked to comply with a wicked scheme. Are we more concerned with what our lives look like than than being identified as followers of Jesus? Let that not be us. We have to watch ourselves closely and confess and repent of of our hypocrisy and conflicted hearts. And though no one is perfect, we need to keep pointing people to the one who is, the one who really has saving power. At the end of this passage, we are left wondering, does Jesus, in fact, even show up? John will indeed show us about a week later that he does show up at the Passover. John shows us that he was sentenced to die and was killed by the Sanhedrin, effectively. The Sanhedrin thought they had preserved their power by sacrificing one person. Jesus did die for the people, but not the way Caiaphas thought. John is saying that his death should be considered not in political terms, but to save the people of God. Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice of one for the good of many and grants them salvation and unity. But you can disapprove or quietly reject him, but the facts of Jesus will not go away. If we understand who Jesus really was, as the rulers did, or if we have heard the Bible's reports of him as the crowds did, there is only one sensible option, and that is to believe in Jesus and follow him. At the start of today, I tried to show that people react differently to the same event, depending on their attitude. The passage shows one gathering full of powerful people serving themselves, trying to maintain their own power. Here, the Sanhedrin thought they would win if they could preserve their power. But when people miss the point about Jesus, they ignore the Saviour and cling to the symbols, whether it be forms of worship or ceremony. The sovereign power of God was not squashed in the killing of Jesus. Later, John shows us that the power of God will raise him him from the dead, just like Lazarus. Jesus actually serves us by giving up power and dying as a substitute by bringing another gathering of people back into fellowship with God. And that is where victory ultimately is. Victory over sin and death comes by faith in Jesus. But today it seems like those against Jesus are much more stronger and the church is weak and divided or messy. That's because the gathering under Jesus will only be fully realised in the future. Now finally we know that 40 years after Jesus, the temple was destroyed. It is no longer. The crowds have long gone. Only when you see that lasting power is with Jesus will you not be a victim of history. By giving up power and surrendering to Jesus, you will benefit from God's plan for history. You'll be forgiven and protected, and in the end, Jesus will receive you into glory. 
Until then, you can defend the hope that is in you. Because the gospel is still being preached and the church is still growing. So let me finish by praying something short for us. Father, thank you for the challenge, the challenge of power that these verses represent and the contrast between these two gatherings. I pray that you would help us to always see where real saving power is with Jesus and that, we, and yet that you would use us, though we are imperfect and broken, to point others to him. Amen. We're now going to sing again um, a song called The Love of the Father about how Jesus has died to gather us as his people and this song celebrates that we are the people of God, the Father who loves us. Um, during this song, um, children will be coming back into the church um, and it's time for parents to pick up their children from